Thank you for listening to the Cathedral Church Podcast. We hope this resource inspires you and equips you to walk in everything that God has for you. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. Later, Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper with a collection of disreputable guests, or that word could be notorious. Unlikely as it seems, say unlikely. More than a few of them have become followers. Notorious, unlikely people became his followers. A list of the unlikely. Noah, a drunkard. Abraham, a liar. Moses, a stutterer. Rahab, a prostitute. Jonah, a man who ran from God. Matthew, a tax collector. And Jesus, an illegitimate son from Nazareth. It doesn't sound like your typical church membership role. (laughs) Often the most unlikely people do the most unbelievable things. Perhaps God is once again gathering a collection of unlikely individuals to follow him into extraordinary times. Unlikely. If you have your Bibles this morning, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And let's pick up verse 43 through 51. John chapter 1. I'm going to read it out of the Passion Bible. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day... Jesus decided to go to the region of Galilee. There he found Philip and said to him, come and follow me. Now Philip, Andrew, and Peter were all from the same village of Bethesda. Then Philip went to look for his friend Nathanael and told him, we found him. We found the one we've been waiting for. It's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, the anointed one. He's the one that Moses and the prophets prophesied about. Nathanael sneered, Nazareth, ha, <laughs> What good thing could ever come from Nazareth? Philip answered and said, come and let's find out. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, now here comes a true son of Israel, an honest man with no hidden motive. Nathanael was stunned and said, but you've never met me. How do you know anything about me? Jesus answered Nathanael, right before Philip came to you, I saw you sitting under the shade of a fig tree. Nathanael blurted out, Teacher, you are truly the Son of God and the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe simply because I told you I saw you sitting under a fig tree? You will experience even more impressive things than that. I prophesy to you eternal truth. From now on, you will see an open heaven and gaze upon the Son of Man like a stairway reaching into the sky with the messengers of God climbing up and down upon it. I want you to notice the key verse in 46. Nathaniel sneered, Nazareth, what good thing could ever come from Nazareth? Let's title this, what good thing. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Give us insight, revelation, speak to us, expose our hearts. God, I'm asking you to help us as a church to take a moment here with what's happening across this nation. And may we truly posture and position ourselves for what's coming. 
However you choose to move, may we be ready for it. May this be a house of possibilities where dreams come true, where all men feel welcomed here. Come as you are. There's a seat, there's a chair with your name on it. Father, speak to us today. Speak to the unlikely and give them hope that God has a plan for their life. We pray this in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Trying to live good when you've been in a bad place. Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, had a view to the past and to the future. Study Nazareth sometimes, sitting up on a ridge, up on a high ridge that overlooked the international highway of the day and the prominent Jezreel Valley. Now, there were battles in the past there, and there's a battle coming in the future called Armageddon. And so Jesus grew up here as a boy, up on this high ridge, overlooking the Jezreel Valley, the international highway. But you have to understand that people from Nazareth were considered a lower, ignorant class of people. They were intermingled with Gentiles, and it was a community of lower moral and religious character. It was a small community where everybody knew everybody's business, and this was the community that Jesus grew up in. You see, those living in Nazareth were considered outsiders of the religious system. This is the whole story of Jesus and his life, raised outside of the religious system, born outside of the religious system, dying outside of the religious system, outside the city gate. Jesus was always an outsider looking in. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was raised in Nazareth outside of Jerusalem. Jesus died outside of Jerusalem, an outsider looking in to make it very clear to all of us who were outsiders that he made a way for us to get in. Because you see, we're Gentiles here this morning and we've been grafted in. He was the firstborn among many brethren and aren't you glad for that? that he made a way for you and I where there seemed to be no way. He was an outsider that was looking in. Now, the word Nazareth, it means guarded one, guarded one. Now, there's different ways you could go with that, but I want to look at that as a community of, of a lower class, ignorant people. I wanted to look at this in the sense of a community that had considered lower morals and, 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 and not a part of the religious system. A, a, a community that was kind of, it was all mingled up with Jews and Gentiles. And so they were looked down upon. And that's why Nathaniel said, what good thing could come from Nazareth? You know, it was the Las Vegas of their day. And so and it just, it was looked down upon. And, and so I want you to look at that with that in mind. If you're from Nazareth, you have a tendency to be guarded, guarded. People have defined you by the problems of your past instead of the possibilities of your future. If you're from Nazareth, you have branded yourself with a label of your mistake. If you're from Nazareth, you're living with one failure that's keeping you from experiencing a lifetime of success, guarded ones. And the church and the community are filled with people from Nazareth, people that have been defined by one mistake, people that have been defined by where they've been instead of where they're going, 
people that have been ostracized and, and shut out of the house because they just don't measure up within the religious system. John chapter two, verse 24, but Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out and knew how untrustworthy they were. This man, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, he knew the hearts of men and Jesus would not give himself to them. He did not trust them. That scripture to me describes so many people today, people that have been hurt in and by the church, people that feel like they don't measure up, people that we would call the unlikely, the unlikely. Remember the scripture that we started out with. It said these notorious guests, those that were unlikely, they actually became some of his followers. You know, just keep that in mind that there are people today. Now, there are some of you in the room and watching on the web that you don't want to admit it, but you have a notorious background. You, you, you're, you're notorious. There, there's, you know, there's, there's been moments that were not stellar moments for you and I. Uh, there's, there's, there's some people in here and watching on the web that you're, you're considered the unlikely you know, you were the unlikely one. People would have never chosen you to be one of his disciples. Have you ever really looked at the list of 12 men that followed him? I mean, these guys were, man, they were something else. And in John chapter 16, 15, 16, Jesus gives them the keys to the family business and says, here, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends and I turn the business over to you. And I have to be honest with you. If I was going to turn the business over to someone, it wouldn't have been those 12. But Jesus did. Jesus gave them the keys. But these people are guarded from Nazareth. Guarded people. They've come to church and they've been hurt because they trusted people with their heart only to have their hearts broken. Now you see, here's the thing about our guarded heart. Our guarded heart is the result of betrayal and the belief that intimacy is dangerous. And therein lies the dilemma of the ministry. You see, we know as with Jesus and doubting Thomas, when Jesus said, look at my scars and see that they prove that I am who I say I am. So we know that scars are the credentials of the overcomer. We minister from our scars. We minister from who we are and not from what we know. People want to know how you went to hell and how you got back. They want to know that. And so you minister from your scars. And so we, we see that uh, the, the, the dilemma that we have with the ministry is that in order for me to really minister, I have to be transparent. For me to really minister effectively, I must be vulnerable. We know this. But yet the problem with being vulnerable is you always run the risk of being hurt. And so you expose your heart and people hurt you. You see, there's the problem. And that's what a guarded heart is, is the result of betrayal and the belief that intimacy is dangerous. But the real thing is, is that intimacy is powerful. Powerful, powerful. As we come into intimacy with God and with one another, it's powerful the things that can happen when people really open up their hearts and truly become vulnerable with one another. So, you know, this is a problem that we have. Because people come into the church with all their stuff. They come the unlikely from Nazareth. They come from there. 
And they come with their past and all their luggage and they're vulnerable and they're transparent and they share things with people only to have people betray their trust and to look down on them. And what do you do? <laughs> How do you live down a reputation that seems to outlive you? I mean, how do you do that? How do you live down a reputation that wants to outlive you? How do you get past that? How do you get people to stop defining you by where you've been and start seeing you as where you're going? I, that's hard, okay? And this is something we've preached on many times in this church and talking about the past and the future. And, and we've made a commitment here at our church that we're not going to gossip about their past but we're gonna prophesy about their future. And that's our commitment, see? That's who we are, okay? That's what we do. We call things that are not as though they are. And that's who we are, and that's what we believe. And, 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 and the question is, is, how do people live down a reputation that wants to outlive them? How do you do that? That's why you see David, King David, in his old age, they brought to him a virgin to keep him warm. In his old age, as a man that's getting ready to pass from their, this life, they still saw him as the man in Bathsheba, the man that was a womanizer. And so they brought him a virgin to keep him warm. You see, how do you live down your past when your past seems to outlive you? How do you deal with that? The unlikely. People that come into our churches and they're the ones that we say what good thing could come from that? What good thing? What good thing could come from Nazareth? What good thing could come from them? What good thing could come? Now, let's be honest. There have been people that have come into our churches that got, that got anointed and God started using, and I thought, I wouldn't have picked them. Well, I have, and the other three people have. God bless y'all for your honesty. But how, how often have we looked at people and we, all, and we thought these are the unlikely? Trying to do good when you come from a bad place. And there are people in this room and on the web that have been in a bad place, a bad place. I'm not talking about geography. I'm talking about life. They come from a bad place. People that came from a, a divorce, people that came from an addiction, people that came from mistakes, people that came from a bad place, people that have come from depression, people that have come from difficulties, people that have come out of perversion, people that have come from a bad place, people that come from Nazareth, the guarded ones, the guarded ones. When they went to Jerusalem, I'm sure they didn't just always tell people, I'm from Nazareth. Hey, I'm from Nazareth. You know, that lower class, ignorant group of people. Hey, I'm from Nazareth. You know, the people that have low morals and they're outside of the religious system. I doubt they just walked in and just started advertising where they were from when they came to Jerusalem. They didn't do that. They were guarded. They tried to avoid the conversation of where are you from? The guarded ones. And people come into our services and we talk a lot about testimonies and we talk a lot about being real and, and we do this. And, and, and then when people get up and they testify and they share their realness with us, we just can't handle it. You see, people want you to be real, but they can't handle your reality. They can't do it. You see, we struggle with the reality of humanity. 
We struggle with this. And I understand, I do. I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm here to be honest with you and tell you that I struggle with it. Reality. The guarded ones. People come into our services and they're guarded. They're not sure how much they want to share with us. They're not sure how much they want to tell. They're not sure how real they want to be. They're not sure how vulnerable they should be because a guarded heart is the result of betrayal and the belief that intimacy is dangerous, dangerous. Let's talk about the people who see the good, though, coming from a bad place, people that have that ability. You see, it's hard to be seen as doing good when you've been in a bad place. But John chapter 1, verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, why don't you come and see? Now, let me give you just a, a side note. Ephesians 1.18, Paul said, I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination, flooding you with light until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance that he finds in us, his holy ones. Look at this. I pray that the light of God will illuminate your imagination. And I pray that for you and I. I pray for the illumination of our imagination so we can see the hope of his calling that is in his collection of the unlikely. I pray the illumination of our imagination. I wanna be able to, to look at a Moses who stutters and say, God's gonna use you as his voice. I, I, I want to look at a guy like Abraham that has no hope of fathering children and say, but you're going to be the father of many nations. I, I want to look at, at a prostitute named Rahab and say, but God's going to use you to, to save his people, to help topple the walls of this city. I, I want to look, I want to look at a, a Jesus born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, that's labeled as an illegitimate child and say, you're going to be the firstborn among many brethren. I want to have his word illuminate my imagination so I can see beyond the problem and see the possibilities. That's the way I want to view people. I want to see the prostitutes and call them the handmaidens of the Lord. I want to see the drug addicts and say, those are the coming preachers of the church. I want to see people that are broken and bruised and cast out and thrown aside and say, these are the ones that will change the world. Illuminate my imagination. So are there any unlikely in the house? Any unlikelies? Any, anyone, any unlikelies in this room? Unlikely, unlikely to be chosen, unlikely to be accepted, unlikely to succeed. Is there anyone unlikely? I'm the one, I'm in the list. Moses stuttered, I'm in the list, I'm on the list. Rahab was a prostitute. How many people in here that would say, I've got a past, I've got some stuff, I've got some luggage, I've got some things, some stuff that, look, there's some stuff that you've done that you've told people and there's some stuff you've done that you ain't told people. And there's some stuff you thought about doing that you ain't told nobody, not even God. Come on, let's just be real. Let's be real because we're dealing with real people that have real issues. This is not a message about condoning sin and unrighteousness or immorality. This is a sin about being, excuse me, a message about being real. 
And understanding that when people come into our midst, there are going to be people that are the unlikely. Don't you love that? Samuel comes to Jesse, seven sons. He lines them up, tall, good-looking, smart, handsome guys, looking for a king, looking for a king. Nope, 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 nope. Don't you have anyone else? I know this is the right house. He said, well, yeah, there's this one, the eighth, which means new beginning. There's this one, and the Bible says he was ruddy, which means that perhaps he was the redheaded stepchild of the family. He's the one, and, and there's a message that I preached years ago on that, that it implies, and they, the Jews believe in the Talmud, their historical writings, they believe that David, it was questionable, rather, in Jesse's mind, he, he, he questioned whether David was really his son or not. That's why he treated him like that illegitimate son. He sat at a different table at mealtime. That's where he said in the Psalms, you have set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He wasn't allowed to sit with the seven boys. He had to sit by himself because Jesse saw him as an illegitimate. You know, just as a whole message there, but yet he's the most unlikely one, but yet he's the one that God chose. God takes the foolish things that confound the wise, the, the weak things to bring down the mighty, the most unlikely one to do something that's extraordinary. Aren't you glad that God will take the unlikely, the unlikely, that those that would never be chosen? I mean, when it came time to choose teams to play softball, you're the last one to get picked. Aren't you glad that God would pick you? You're the last one. Now, is there anyone else? Well, there's one old boy out in the back. He's watching over the sheep, but we don't have much hope for him. God says he's the one. The unlikely. Aren't you thankful for the, that God chooses the unlikely? People who see the good coming from a bad place. So what did Jesus see? Now, Jesus is from Nazareth, the guarded ones, the outcasts, the overlooked, the lower class, ignorant, low moral, low character people. This is where Jesus is from. This is what he saw when he saw Nathaniel coming. Number one, people from Nazareth. Let me, let me say that this is why, I just want you to understand, this is, this is why it's so important that we, we embrace the unlikely. They have a perspective that we religious people don't always have. Okay, just think about this. Number one, what Jesus saw coming from Nazareth. Number one, uh, people from Nazareth, they recognize the decoy in religion. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. The word deceit in the Greek means a decoy, a trick. You know what I found about people that come out of the world, get saved, born again, filled with the spirit and call a God on their life. They're pretty quick to pick up on the decoy. Yeah, they can see pretense real quick. They can see, they can smell religion a mile away. Come on now. You can help me or I can preach long. What do you want to do? Your choice. People that come out of the world, they pick up on religion real fast. They smell it. They smell it real quick. Uh, he, that's religious. That's religious. 
Yeah, you see, when you grow up in religion, you build a tolerance for the older. Boy, I can tell I'm eating by myself today. Suzanne's out of town, and I'm gonna eat lunch by myself. Look, Jesus is from Nazareth. He's outside the system. He's been rejected and despised by his own. They wouldn't have nothing to do with him. And when Nathaniel's coming, he says, there he is. He's not a decoy. There are three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. Number one, judge. Now the power of life transformation is found in truth spoken in love and not shaming. Listen, I'm going to preach truth, but that gives me no right to shame people. God forgive you. God forgive you. God forgive me. If we look down our long religious nose at people and we shame them because perhaps they're trying to work through some things. Perhaps they're trying to figure it out. You know, not everybody was born just poof, perfect like you. Some of us had to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Some of us had to work some stuff. How many, how many had any stuff when you got saved? Yeah. So sinners hate it when we judge. They don't mind us telling them the truth. Just do it in love. And don't shame them. Hmm. Number two, hypocrisy, being hypocritical. You see, we can own our imperfection without living in its sin. It's okay to say, I'm imperfect. I got stuff I'm dealing with, but you don't, it doesn't give you an excuse to live in your sin. We're all hypocrites, every one of us. Every one of us puts forth a better face than what we actually have. Are you, are you hearing me? Come on now. Sinners hate it. Sinners only want us to be honest and just to admit that we're not perfect. Number three, sinners. They don't like it when we're unfriendly. Individuals know when you see them as a project and not a person. Man, where is this stuff coming from? Jesus. Listen, when you make a sinner a project and not a person, they smell that. They get it. Don't make people a project. Don't, don't, don't do that. Just love people. Care about people. Just care about them. Care about them. And I guarantee you'll win them to Christ. But when you try to, when you approach sinners as another project and just get another notch in your belt, listen, they pick up on that. They get that. Listen, when you treat them like a person and not a project. Treat them in a way that you'd want to be treated. Sometimes Christians aren't the most friendly. We're not the friendliest people. We go into restaurants and there's a group of them over there and they may be drinking. Maybe they've drank a little bit too much and they're laughing, having a good time and we sit together and we get, a, we get that self-righteous long nose on us and we just look down on that. Listen, they sense that. You ought to go over there and sit down with them and talk to them and just be a friend to them. Buy their dinner, buy their meal. Are you with me? Not about compromise. We seem unfriendly. Listen, people will never believe you love them 
if they feel you don't like them. Man. Sinners don't think we like them. They're never gonna believe that we love them. Jesus, people from Nazareth, they pick up on that decoy, that trick in religion, that decoy, that self-righteous religious spirit. He said, there comes Nathaniel. He's not a decoy. Number two, what Jesus saw. They see the sun under the fig tree. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Ooh, that's ah, so deep. You're going to have to, this is going to marinate with you when I give you this one, but how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Under the fig tree. Okay, so he's sitting under a fig tree. He's just meditating. He's, you know, chilling out. Well, how is that such a, how does that provoke such a powerful response from Nathaniel? Because you got to remember, there was a, there was a burst of faith that rose up in this man. I knew you. He said, how do you know me? I saw you under the fig tree. Interesting. So you research this. Nathaniel and Bartholomew is one person with two names. Read the 12 disciples. Bartholomew is the name used, but that is Nathaniel. Now, Bartholomew is a Gentile name, son of Tomei, which means furred or wrinkled brow. Okay, like concern, conflicted, problem. Nathaniel's Jewish name means gift of God. So he starts out as Bartholomew, a problem, but he ends up being seen by someone as a gift from God. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, now here comes a true son. What's he saying? An honest man with no hidden motive. By affirming his sonship, Jesus awakened Nathanael's faith. There was a burst, an explosion. Verse 49, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you, here we go again, talking about sons and family with the king of Israel. Perhaps Nathanael the man was adopted because Bartholomew the baby was abandoned under a fig tree. Why would Nathaniel be so moved by one moment under a fig tree? Why would he immediately have a burst of faith and say, you're truly the son of God? He talks about sonship. Why would one man have a Gentile name and a Jewish name? Is it possible? Is it possible that Bartholomew was abandoned and Nathaniel was adopted. Is it possible that those in the community knew who he was? You see, they called him the son of Tomei. That means we know who you are. They knew who that little girl was and abandoned him. Was he labeled as an illegitimate son? It seems only right that there was a connection between Jesus who was called an illegitimate son with this Nathaniel who was abandoned under a fig tree. One man with two names, one Jewish, one Gentile, 
causes you to pause. One man living in two worlds and rejected by both. The Jews knew who he was and so did the Gentiles. The Jews didn't want him because he's not accepted because he's illegitimate. The Gentiles didn't want him because he was too religious. Think about this, Deuteronomy 23. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You see, the world is filled with the sons and daughters of God trying to emerge and find where they fit in the assembly. They're trying to find their seat in the house. They're trying to find it. They're trying to find their seat in this house. Where do I fit? Where do I fit? A seat. Where do I fit? Where do they fit? Do we have a seat for them? Maybe we should put a seat in there and put a sticker on it that says drug addict, prostitute, illegitimate, divorced. Is there a seat in our house for any and all people? Would we make room? The unlikely. You're welcome here. Jesus saw Nathaniel and he said, there's no decoy there. The Bible said Jesus saw Nathaniel. He said, there's a real son. Why would you call? If somebody looked at me and said, you're a real son, I said, well, thank you. You see, Jesus was addressing a problem. Nathaniel did not see himself as a son. That's why he called him a son of Israel. Nathaniel felt cast out of the religious system. That's why Jesus said, that's a real son of Israel. Jesus wouldn't say that just to be saying it. He was addressing a heavy burden that Nathaniel was carrying. He was a son of Israel. He called him that because he never felt like he truly was. And that's what caused him to burst with faith and say, how did you know me? How do you know me with all of my stuff? How do you know me with my secret, my, my secret pain and my, my, the meditations of my heart, the dreams that I have? How do you know my pain? How do you know my dreams? How do you know me? Jesus so moved this man. How did you know me? How do you know me beyond my name? How did you look past Nathaniel and see Bartholomew? How did you, how did you do that? He said, I saw you, son, when you were under the fig tree when that little girl abandoned you as a baby. He said, wow, you really are the son of God. What do you do with this? How do you deal with this? Jesus, Jesus saw the reality of the real person. That's what people from Nazareth's, Nazareth do. They get it. They look at people and they see them for who they really are. The third thing is people from Nazareth, they see how impressive they will be. Verse 50, 51, Jesus said, do you believe simply because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will experience even more impressive things than that. I prophesy to you eternal truth. From now on, you will see an open heaven and gaze upon the Son of Man like a stairway reaching into the sky with the messengers of God coming back and forth. So just 
looking and talking to people that have a fig tree experience. Is there anybody in here with a fig tree experience? I mean, you've got some stuff back there. A fig tree experience, an abandonment, a betrayal, a hurt, a disappointment, something happened to you. You see, most people have a fig tree experience where something happened to them that cuts really deep. A fig tree experience. What do we do with people when they come into our services and they're the unlikely? How do we deal with them? We find an example here with Jesus. He said, you will experience impressive things. So we need to tell them, God has a big idea about you. It's impressive. It said that, he said, I, I prophesy eternal truth to you. God's plan for your future is bigger than the problems of your past. That's what we need to tell them. He talked about a open heaven and messages coming up and down. We need to tell them God will guide you from his book of destiny. You're going to live under an open heaven and God's going to give you access to him and to that book of destiny. God's got a destiny for your life. We need to tell them this. You say, what do we tell the unlikely? What do we tell people that are overlooked? What do we tell Nathaniels that were abandoned under a fig tree? This is what you tell them. You tell them what Jesus told Nathaniel. God has a big idea for you. Your, his plan for your future is bigger than the problems of your past. You tell them that God's gonna give you, your father will give you full access. And he'll let you read the book of destiny and give you a sense of destiny. First Peter chapter two, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Affirming their royalty obligates them to their duty. Let me tell you something, you wanna change people, then affirm their royalty. Affirm it, say you are a chosen people. Tell them you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a part of something bigger than you are. And people will rise to the level of your expectation. I'm telling you, if we'll affirm their royalty, it will obligate them to their duty. No man will throw away his, his life for anything less. They'll be like Joseph and Potiphar's wife and say, I, I cannot so sin against my calling. I cannot so sin against my master. I can't so sin against my destiny. Royalty and an affirmation of royalty will obligate them to their duty every time. Instead of gossiping about their failures, prophesy about their promises. Stephen, come help me. Closing remarks, Mark chapter two, verse 15, again. Later, Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper with a collection of disreputable people, guests. Likely as it seems, that is amazing to me. More than a few of them had become followers. So here's the list of the unlikely. Noah, a drunkard, Abraham, a liar, Moses, a stutterer, Rahab, a prostitute, Jonah, a man who ran from God, Matthew, a tax collector, Jesus, an illegitimate son from Nazareth, in your name. What would you do? What would you put there? If that was your name, what would you fill in the blank with? Does your name belong on the list of the unlikely? Often the 
most unlikely people to the most unbelievable things. I sense God is once again gathering a collection of unlikely individuals to follow him into extraordinary times. Thank you for listening to the Cathedral Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit icathedral.org.